Let's open our Bibles to the third chapter of Romans. We just sang a wonderful spiritual song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The apostles told the Jews in Acts chapter 4, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. Speaking of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have taken a few weeks away from the epistle to the Romans, and we return to it today. I hope you remember that in verses 1 through 7, we had a salutation as Paul greeted his readers in Rome. And then an introduction as to what his intent was in verses 8 through 17. The condemnation of all men, Jews and Gentiles alike in chapter 118 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. And then at verse 21, Paul begins an introduction of how salvation must occur in order to save the condemned Jews and Gentiles that he has left hopeless at the end of verse 20. And I want to read to you verses 21 through 31, and we'll see how far we can go this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ, Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Amen and amen. Thus saith the Lord in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31. Let's take these verses quickly. We have already learned 21 through 24, and we'll try to get to 25. But just to get our minds back to where they should be, let's look at verse 21. Remember what I taught you there? What a glorious disjunctive. When we have a conjunction that is setting two statements or two thoughts in opposition to each other, it's called a disjunctive. And verse 21 starts with a disjunctive, but 
Because what verse 21 begins to tell us is salvation. And verse 20 had just ended three chapters, two chapters of condemnation. But, and we're thankful for that but. And then we have the word now that indicates not that Paul has changed his writing, but that God had changed his revelation. The Old Testament revealed condemnation other than a witnessing of coming salvation. But the New Testament is a glorious message of salvation. But now, the righteousness of God. We had run into this phrase, the righteousness of God, in verse 17 of the first chapter. Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just don't make a decision of faith. The just live by faith. Our whole life should be characterized by faith, just not some emotional momentary decision that we made for Jesus. We should be living for the Lord Jesus Christ every day. But here is the righteousness of God. This is not describing God's character, the righteousness of God, or God's righteousness. This is describing the righteousness that we have to have on us in order to be acceptable to God. How do we get it? Chapter 1, the second half, all of chapter 2, first half of chapter 3, pointed out that we're condemned. We're condemned. How will we stand before God? If we're not standing there in His righteousness, we're lost. But now, the righteousness of God, in verse 21, is manifested. That means, it's being revealed. It's being disclosed. It's being discovered. It's being shown. It's being taught. It's being declared. But now the righteousness of God is manifested. It's clearly visible. The word manifest, let me repeat myself over and over so that you'll never forget and your children will remember. What does the word manifest mean? What is a manifest? The noun manifest. Is it a list of what is hidden away in a ship's hold? It is. And so when something is made manifest, what's hidden from view is brought to light. And what had been hidden in the Old Testament was the salvation by Jesus Christ. But now, the righteousness of God is made manifest. Or it's manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But notice in there, without the law. There is righteousness that comes upon men without the law. The Jews thought and this is very important to understand Romans, is to remember Paul's audience. It was Jews and Gentile proselytes who were under the threat of false teachers coming out of Judea that were teaching you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. So Paul has dealt thoroughly in condemning Gentiles first and then Jews that they couldn't be saved by the law. But now he's stating it. And he says, but now the righteousness of God without the law. The law of Moses does not make anyone righteous. And Paul's saying that's the way it's always been, and it was witnessed so in the Old Testament if he'd have just read it more carefully. Because Isaiah 53 described the Lord Jesus Christ coming and dying for the iniquities of His people. It was there in the Old Testament. It was witnessed by it. But now it's being declared openly. It's being made manifest to the people of God. And so we have verse 21. I hope you understand it clearly in every word of it. But now, today is the day of salvation, the Apostle Paul would write. And when he wrote that, he didn't mean a 24-hour period of time. He meant the period of called the New Testament that came after John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. 
Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Because the gospel was broadcast, not only to the Jews, but throughout the earth by the apostles. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is an expression of God to describe the Old Testament. Part of it's the law, part of it's the prophets. And there's poetry. So when the, when the Lord wants to be thorough in his description of the Old Testament, he says the law and the prophets and the Psalms. To get the whole Old Testament of 39 books. And so he's saying here, it was witnessed how we were going to be saved in the Old Testament. But now it's being made open and plain to all through the gospel. And that's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it reveals and discloses the power and wisdom of God in saving us. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Even, meaning this is a specific example, and this is exactly what I mean by the righteousness of God in verse 21. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, earned by the faithful faith and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ unto all and upon all believers. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's righteousness is upon you, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ's faith and obedience. And it's on you, and it's unto you, and you are righteous. And the mark, the evidence that you are one of God's is that you believe on Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Phinehas executed judgment and it was counted to him for righteousness. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's counted to us for righteousness. How was the righteousness secured? It was secured by Jesus Christ's obedience to God. That's verse 22. Then we come to verse 20. Well, the last part of verse 22 says... For there is no difference. It doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And this point is constant throughout Romans because of the problem he had. He had a mixed congregation and there was the threat of false teachers taking these poor Christians that didn't completely know the gospel yet back under the yoke of the Old Testament. Right. It grieves me that Paul had to spend so much of the time writing the New Testament epistles to oppose Jewish legalism. There is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one, Jew or Gentile, able to stand before God because they're all inadequate in and of themselves. And he's proven that Jews and Gentiles are equally condemned in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so he comes to this verse that most of us know by heart, that we learned a long time ago, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jews have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. None of them are able to stand before God's glorious presence without the righteousness of God being put upon them by Jesus Christ's faithfulness and obedience, and by His faith and trust in God that caused Him to obey Him His entire life, even through death, and then commending His Spirit into the hands of God. So we come to verse 24. Being justified. This is how it happens. This is what it's called. It's the doctrine of justification. Being justified. That puts it in a passive voice meaning that we're receiving the justifying work of another. Being justified freely. It's free to us, but it wasn't free to God. It cost God His only begotten Son, but it's free to us. Being justified freely. We don't believe in the seven sacraments of Rome. We don't believe in six, five, four, three, two, or one. Sacrament of any church. 
We believe in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrificial life, His sacrificial death, and His continual life to make intercession for us is the basis of our justification. And it comes free to us. It's a free gift. It's not an offer. It's a gift. The Bible doesn't describe salvation as an offer. The Bible describes salvation as a gift. And when a person is dead, in order to be given the gift of eternal life, they don't participate in the reception of that gift at all. They're passive. It's given. The Bible says, and you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's referring to the vital phase of salvation. But it's a free gift. It's not an offer. If you walk into a morgue and walk up to a dead corpse and offer him life, it doesn't do any good. God didn't offer dead men life. He gave life to dead men. And then He requires of them obedience. Praise His glorious name. And He's worthy of it. Being justified freely by His grace. And brethren, this is the third time. I do know most of the time at this stage in my life when I repeat myself. There is coming a day when I will not know. And you can send me an email that I made a point three times and it will shock me thinking that I only made it once, but I'm making it for the third time. When the Bible tells us about His grace, it is not something that was required of God because of us. God did not feel sorry for sinners. If God felt sorry for sinners, why did He create a Garden of Eden with a commandment to make us sinners and allow the devil into that garden to lead us to sin? Knowing exactly every step of what was going to take place. He did not feel sorry for us. There's nothing in us of value. He didn't save the fallen angels. Why in the world would He save men? There's nothing in our nature to require mercy out of Him. There's nothing in His nature to require mercy out of Him. If there's something in His nature that requires mercy out of Him, then it is righteousness and it's not mercy. I, I hope you can see that. It's a choice to show mercy. And the only way He could show mercy is to devise a plan in which His righteousness and justice could be fully satisfied while showing mercy. How can He send us to hell and to heaven at the same time? That would be righteousness and that would be mercy. We'd be in heaven, but righteousness would be satisfied by sending us to hell. How can He do it? I'm sorry for shouting. Not too much, but, I mean, not too much sorrow. Think about it. Mercy is a choice to show mercy, and then he had to devise a way to do it. And that's what we're going to get to in the 26th verse, that God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It is the power and wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. What is that power? It is coming up with a plan of salvation in which He is just and righteous and He's merciful. There is no outside body. There's no separation of powers in heaven to require mercy out of God. It is purely by a choice. And so it says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We were redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This 24th verse is where we ought to take up our focus when we think about justification. 
because it says it's free. It's passive upon us. It's by His grace. And it's through Christ's redemption. Jesus Christ is the one that secured it so that God could give it. God couldn't show mercy without Jesus Christ paying for it. The legal sacrifice, the legal transaction, the fine, if you will. Although I don't like using the word fine when it comes to the blood of Christ. But the price that was paid to free us so that we could be declared righteous was the blood of Jesus Christ. The redemption that was in Him. Justification is a legal word. It's a forensic word. It's a word that is used in court to declare someone innocent and free of the charges that had been levied against them. That is justification. Except Bible justification is even better. We are declared free of the sins we've committed and we are declared holders of the righteousness of Christ. It is not enough to say that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That's a Sunday school soundbite. Just as if I'd never sinned. The Bible doctrine of justification is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I had lived Jesus Christ's perfect life. Amen. That's, that's a little bit better. I don't want to stand before God just as if I'd never sinned because then I'm in a state of neutrality before Him. I want to stand before God in a state of I live the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ and I'll stand before Him as a co-heir with Jesus Christ of eternity. Of heaven's blessings. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is an economic term, meaning that a price was paid to buy someone back from a claim that was against them. The claim that was against us is God's law. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. We were bought back. By Jesus Christ paying the price of His precious blood. That is redemption. It's an economic or a financial term. And all you young men that presented several weeks ago on the facets of salvation, God has chosen in wisdom to convey salvation to us by a number of facets approaching 20 different terms in the New Testament that describe salvation under different kinds of terms. Justification is legal. Redemption is financial or economical. Propitiation is relational. It's to appease someone. We're going to run into it momentarily. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We shall all stand before God. It is appointed to men once to die, and after this the judgment. We shall all stand before God. But our God has sent His Son to redeem us from the claims of His law, and He declares us righteous on the grounds of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Jesus Christ was the perfect child, the perfect citizen, the perfect Son of God, the perfect brother, the perfect neighbor, the perfect preacher, the perfect everything, and we stand in His righteousness before God. It is a gift of grace. There was nothing in God to call it forth from Him. He chose to show it, and then He chose to devise a way that He could accomplish it and still be righteous and just. So we come to verse 25 after that wonderful statement in verse 24. And I hope you'll remember the sermons I preached to you several weeks ago. You need a lawyer. You need a lawyer. We're going to stand at a judgment bar of Almighty God. And the heaven and earth are going to flee away from the face of Him that sits on that great white throne according to Revelation chapter 20. You're in need of a lawyer. And I reviewed with you 
all the things that the Bible, or most of the things that the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ being the perfect lawyer and mediator for us with God. Let's not forget that. As we get closer to death and standing before God, let's remember that we have a lawyer that never dies, never sleeps. He's sitting at God's right hand. The Father always receives him, and he has his blood to offer as the sacrifice for our sins. We have a lawyer. Thank you, Lord. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. 1 Timothy 2.5. Verse 25. Whom God, speaking of Christ Jesus, which is the last noun, the personal, pro, the, pro, the personal name in the last part of verse 24, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This 25th verse is wonderful as it goes on to explain what is in the 24th verse. And let's rejoice at what we have here. Whom? Whom God hath set forth. God Almighty set forth the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when He was brought forth of a woman made under the law. But He had also been set forth by covenant before the world began. Because it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 that He had been foreordained before the foundation of the world to be our Savior. God had set Him forth. Whom? God. We want to recognize and remember that salvation begins in the mind and purpose of Almighty God. We opened up our service this morning with Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, where it says, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And it goes on to describe chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestinated to the adoption of sons, according to the good pleasure of His will, where He's made us accepted in the Beloved. All of that was in one long sentence. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It begins in the mind and purpose of God to reveal His mercy and grace. There's nothing in us to call forth that mercy or grace. There's nothing in Him to call it forth except that is part of His character and He chose to reveal it to men by saving some sinners. Sin and judgment in the Garden of Eden was not a surprise to God. God was not surprised in the least bit as to what happened. God arranged all the circumstances knowing that we would freely choose in our first father to condemn the race. But He had devised a way to magnify His glory and honor by saving His elect out of that fallen mess. Some will say, does that mean then that God elects people to hell? No! They chose to go to hell. Why are you blaming God for what men choose to do? God didn't elect men to hell. We elected ourselves to hell. And we do it every day that we sin. And our first father did it in a situation where there was no sin in the world. He had one commandment to keep. And he chose his wife over the God of heaven. He chose a woman instead of God. And it's happened many times since. Whom God hath set forth from eternity, but then in time the Lord Jesus Christ was seen to be a propitiation. What is a propitiation? It's a mediatorial term. It's a relational term of appeasing an offended party. God was offended and angry with sinners. There's so much to undo that men teach. God cannot love a sinner as a sinner. It is impossible. He can only love a sinner that He has put in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God cannot love a sinful object. The only reason that men argue that is that they feel sorry for themselves because they don't like being caught in their sinful rebellion against God. If they cared about the character of God, then they would teach that God loves the devil. But they never teach that. Because they don't care about the character of God, they just feel sorry for themselves that they're caught in their sins. But God is angry with the wicked every day. Read it in the Bible. The Bible says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. God hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, five. So God is angry with the wicked because we're sinners. His rule is very simple. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Amen. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And so he, made, he set forth a propitiation. What's a propitiation? It is a gift. It is a sacrifice to appease an angry party. God gave himself a propitiatory gift to appease his righteous claims against us. And that gift was his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Right. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. God set Jesus Christ forth to propitiate an angry party. Who was the angry party? God himself. What was the propitiation? Jesus Christ's life. Who did it make peace with? You and me. God is at peace with you and me because Jesus Christ died to satisfy God's anger and wrath. It pleased the Lord to bruise Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says it pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. In Isaiah 53, thank you, Lord. He poured out His wrath. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Jesus had never been forsaken by God His Father. Why was He forsaken? Because God cannot be friends with a sinner. God can only be friends with a sinner that is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and is repenting. Jesus didn't hang around with sinners in the Bible. It's so crazy what people twist, how people twist Scripture. Jesus had supper with repentant sinners. Jesus didn't go into the brothel to find prostitutes. Jesus had prostitutes come to Him and kiss His feet and cry on His feet and beg for mercy and the forgiveness of their sins. Those were the prostitutes and harlots that made up the kingdom of heaven. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. A gift has been given that appeased the wrath of God toward us. The wrath of God has spent itself on Christ Jesus. There is none left. When we meet Him, there will be no wrath. The wrath was poured out upon our Savior. Right. And He took it all. Amen. It's not the nails in His hands. It's not the nails in His feet. Men do that even today by choice. In darkened Catholic nations like the Philippines and Mexico, they'll be crucified at Easter time and have nails driven through their hands and through their feet. That's not a fatal wound. And I'm not mocking or making light of what our Savior did for us. But the greater tragedy that he had to endure was the wrath of God upon his soul. He endured an eternity of hell in punishment for sin in a few hours on the cross. Because he was an infinite object that could take 
an infinite amount of suffering. And he did for us. Sufficient to satisfy the justice of God. Thank you, Lord. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The faith in his blood is God's faith in Christ's blood. This is not talking about your involvement yet. Your involvement is, is about to come. The description of what is taking place here is God's righteousness and justice being satisfied. And he's going to use two words, faith and forbearance. God set Jesus Christ forth knowing, trusting, believing that the sacrifice of his life would satisfy his just claims against us. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. We understand this to mean God's confidence and trust and belief and knowledge that Jesus Christ's blood, his life, the giving of his life, would satisfy his righteous claims against us. Because I want you to think about what this passage is about to tell us. For 4,000 years, there wasn't a sacrifice to cover men's sins. For 4,000 years, God declared men righteous on the ground of something that was yet to take place. And that was his faith in the blood of Christ. There wasn't even a Christ yet. By Christ, I mean a physical Messiah on earth. There wasn't one yet. And yet God could receive the spirits of men straight into heaven and declare them righteous and fit to be with him in heaven. Though without their bodies, their spirits went straight to heaven. God buried Moses. Moses went to heaven. God took Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind and a chariot. God took Enoch into heaven. Men went to heaven. So that when we come to Hebrews 12, we find the spirits of just men made perfect up in heaven. But how could God declare them righteous for 4,000 years? Through faith in His blood. Whom God... This is, God is operating in verse 25, not you. Amen. You, can't, you can't, by having faith in God, cause the declaration of righteousness to be made for anyone other than yourself. Because you can't do that. What about the sins that are past? We're about to read this, and I'm just I'm speaking ahead of myself because verse 26 and the rest of 25 is going to help us understand. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Our justification is by grace. It's through the redemptive purchase by the blood of Jesus Christ, all in verse 24. Then verse 25, God has set Jesus forth to be the appeasement gift to satisfy the claims of His own wrath and justice by faith in His blood so that He could declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Here is God's faith in Christ's coming sacrifice to declare the remission of sins that are past. Now, brethren, you've got to understand this verse. If God, if God did not send Jesus Christ to die for your sins that are future, you're going to hell. If God didn't send Jesus Christ to die for your sins that are present, you're going to hell. This verse is not just describing your sins that are past. This verse is describing sins that are past. All the sins under the Old Covenant. All the sins under the Old Testament. The, the blood of animals didn't wash those sins away. What did wash those sins away? How could God declare Moses righteous, Enoch righteous, Elijah righteous, Abraham righteous? How could He? Through faith in His blood and by His forbearance of putting up with their sins until the Savior would come that He trusted in would be mighty on behalf of His people and lay down His life for them. 
whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. So that God, God is the operator here. Notice, it doesn't switch. So that God could declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. It was God's forbearance to put up with sins while waiting for a Savior. And it was His faith that Christ's blood was sufficient to put away all those sins that were past for 4,000 years of the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews 9 just for a moment so that you can see a commentary on what Paul just wrote in chapter 3 and verse 25. Hebrews chapter 9. Your faith, my faith, doesn't cover sins that are past. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ... So we know we can see that we're talking about... Let's back up. Let's go up back up to verse 12. The comparison here is the blood of the animals that was shed under the Old Testament and comparing it to the blood of Christ. Look at this and see the commentary on Romans 3.25. Verse 12 of Hebrews 9. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Is redemption in verse 24 of Romans 3? And redemption is right here in verse 12 of Hebrews 9. Blood and the redemptive purchase is in both places. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more should this sacrifice mean to us? Verse 15, And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption, Romans 3.24 is tied in here by that word redemption, For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How did they receive the promise of eternal inheritance? When they had all those sins under the old covenant that the blood of bulls and of goats could not take away? By God setting forth Jesus Christ, though He didn't come until the world history had passed for 4,000 years, to lay down His life for them. And so here it's called... The transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How did they receive it? God set forth Jesus Christ, who gave His life by shedding His blood, and who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God. Jesus Christ offered Himself, but He didn't offer Himself to sinners. He didn't offer Himself to the devil. He didn't offer Himself to anyone but God. And God accepted The offering of Jesus Christ, because he had faith in his blood, and through God's forbearance, he had put up with those sins for 4,000 years, which Christ in due time paid for. That's looking backward, because that's what Paul's purpose is, is to handle Jews wondering, how did we get saved then? We understand, looking forward, by reading the epistles to us Gentiles, including Romans, that Jesus Christ's sacrifice worked backward 4,000 years, worked forward 2,000 years, And it was the blood that was the redemptive purchase price for all of us that we might receive our eternal inheritance. So that God could declare His righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past 
Through the forbearance of God. What does forbearance mean? To put up with something. To patiently endure something. And for 4,000 years, God put up with and patiently endured His people sinning against Him, though there was going to be a sacrifice made for them 4,000 years hence, when Jesus Christ came, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. Verse 26, To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. The gospel brings the message of what God had planned for 4,000 years. And though it was witnessed in the Old Testament, the majority of Old Testament religion was based on animal blood. It was witnessed back there. If you read Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 and other places like that, there was a witness of a Savior that was coming. But the majority of the religion was a schoolmaster to drive us toward Christ. It didn't, sac- it didn't put away sins. It could not make the conscience of any worshiper pure. Hebrews 9 also said that, and I'm not going to turn back there right now, but the Old Testament with all of its blood of animals couldn't make your conscience pure because you knew your sins weren't washed away. Verse 26, here comes the Gospel. To declare, I say, this is Paul involving himself, there in those two little words, to declare, I say, at this time, this is the Gospel time. When it says that God hath set forth, now Jesus Christ is visible. Now we have reason for the word now in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. To declare, I say, at this time. This was a huge changing event in the history of the world. In Hebrews 9, what is this time called? The time of Reformation. reformation. Because the religion of God was being reformed from an external, carnal religion that couldn't put away sin to a spiritual, internal religion that does put away sin. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness. Jesus Christ's righteousness, which is His obedience of God, which is the, which is the righteousness of God. And I don't want to confuse the terms very much because as Jesus Christ obeyed God, it was His righteousness because He was the one obeying, but it was God's righteousness, because He obeyed Him and His righteous law perfectly. To declare, I say at this time, Jesus Christ's righteous obedience of God, that He might be just, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. How can God, who must punish every sin, show mercy to some sinners and save them? How can He do it? To declare Jesus Christ's righteousness through faith in His blood, through forbearance of sins for 4,000 years, justifying us freely by His grace through the redemptive purchase price of Jesus Christ. It's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Paul says from 24 to 26 that we are justified freely, that it's by God's grace that Jesus Christ purchased it by His redemption of us through shedding His blood on the cross, that God had set Him forth to be the propitiatory appeasement sacrifice against His own claims against us as sinners by faith and confidence in His blood for 4,000 years of forbearance for sins that were past so that He could declare Jesus Christ's righteousness for all of them, past, present, future, so that Paul could declare in verse 26 His righteousness that God is just because He punished every sin in Christ and that God is a justifier that He saved 
those that are sanctified and that have been called to an eternal inheritance. He is just and He is the justifier. And how was He able to do that? By coming up with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life for us. And how do you know that that work has been done for you? How do you know that you're freely justified? How do you know that God's grace is in your life? How do you know that you've been redeemed by Christ? How do you know that that blood is for you? How do you know any of those things? He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and it makes all the difference in the world. It is the evidence that you're one of God's justified, redeemed, propitiated, and loved children because he set forth Jesus Christ to redeem us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And this is how thou shalt be saved. God chose and set forth the Lord Jesus Christ for you before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ redeemed you. It was the purchase price of His blood, looking backward with forbearance and faith, looking forward with reality that has redeemed every one of us. God is just and justifier. His holy law is intact. As the 31st verse is going to say, do we then make void the law through faith? Not at all. The law is established by this fact that Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly for us. And do you know what we get to when we, every time we sing, we declare that 26th verse. And we just sang that song that we have entitled The Solid Rock. And let me say the words again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy. Lean on Jesus' name. When you get to heaven, you stand there boldly and you tell Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Jesus died for me. Jesus shed His blood for me. I stand here in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. But before you get there, say that today. Believe that today. And let's go out of this place and live like it today. Amen. It's the believer that shows that the justifying work of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the value of Christ's blood is upon him by his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Phinehas executed judgment. It was counted to him for righteousness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. It will be counted to you for righteousness. And I can declare on the authority of Romans 3.26 that His righteousness is upon you. But bear faith. Bear faith. Be a faith that has nothing else with it. Faith without works is no faith. Is no saving faith. It's no evidence of salvation. James chapter 2 would say faith without works is dead. That the devils believe and tremble. Paul does not deal with that because to have involved that statement in Romans chapter 3 would have confused the very people that he was opposing. He could not do it. And it's very difficult for me to preach to a bunch of people that have been saved out of Arminianism to go through Romans chapter 3 and 4 and make it plain because Paul could not bring those thoughts in from James chapter 2 or it would dilute, distract, divert, and confuse his hearers. He had to make faith opposite of works But you know from reading the rest of the Bible that faith without works is dead. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and go live like He's the Lord and Savior of your life. And we can declare about you and you can declare about me the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ 
is unto him and upon him. May Jesus Christ be praised.